Philippians 3, 1 through 7 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. This is the word of our Lord. Well, I must confess to you this morning that that I went all my life until this week without watching the movie A Christmas Carol. A friend of mine asked me if I had lived under a bridge all my life. I just grew up in Old Fort. But before that, I lived in Tennessee. So I think that explains a lot. And then the other part is I grew up without television, as many of you know. The first time I ever watched television on any regular, consistent basis was in college. My roommate had a television, and I didn't know they were reruns. I thought that was the first time anybody had ever seen that. Everything I watched was a rerun, but it was all new to me. And so I watched the movie this week, since we have a sermon series based on it. I thought that was a good idea. And I prepared the sermon even before seeing the movie, and then I go to see the movie, and because I want the sermon to be from the Word of God, not from a movie. But then when I go to see the movie, it's interesting, the reason that our team, so we meet, uh, we just met this past week, and, and to plan our, our preaching calendar for all of next year. And, and so this was planned a year ago. And so I look, and I see, and uh, this morning I know that there are some people in here who, who are like Marley when he appears to uh, Ebenezer Scrooge, because these were his words. I wear the chain I forged in life, replied the ghost. I made it link by link and yard by yard. I girded it on one of, uh, I girded it on of my own free will and of my own free will, I wore it. What is he talking about? He spent years focused on making money on work to at the expense of relationships at the expense of helping the poor at the expense of a lot of things and in his death as you see him as the ghost in the movie he's chained he's carrying around heavy ledgers with him he's carrying the chains of a legacy that he is not proud of And I know in this room this morning that there are some of you who are doing the same. You have a living legacy that is chaining you down. And uh, for some of you, it is because you will not let it go. Uh, The temptation to do, to 
be to whatever it may be is just too big and you will not let it go. You know the change you need to make, but you will not make the change. That's where some of you live. Then there are others of you who did let it go, but it plays like a broken record in your mind. It rolls again and again. One misstep and every misstep seems to play all over again. Can I get a witness? Is there anybody who lives there? Like you make one mistake and it's every mistake you've ever made. You scrutinize yourself to such a degree that your life is a constant struggle of misery and difficulty and and intermittent victory. And so that's where you live. And so I would say to you that Paul's words are for you this morning in particular, but I would say to others of you who are here and the Spirit has revealed what needs to go in your life, listen to Him. Listen to Him. Paul says in these verses, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. That parenthetical uh, phrase is huge. In the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble. He, he said, I'll write this again and again and again and all day long. That's not trouble for me. And it's safe or it safeguards you. This morning, this word, if you will allow it, will safeguard you. From what? How do you rejoice in the Lord? I'm not asking you this morning. And some of you, this is a total paradigm shift. I'm not asking you to rejoice in how much money you may have just given. I'm not asking you to rejoice in what good you may have done this week, how early you may have arrived here even this morning, or how late you stayed on something this week. Uh, We are grateful for that. No. I'm asking you, because God's word is to rejoice in the Lord. In the Lord. Uh, You you say, why? Well, how? Uh, Let's look. Number one way to rejoice in the Lord, believe it or not, is beware of the dogs. Beware of the dogs. Now, this would make more sense to me if it said beware of cats. (laughs) But it doesn't. It says, beware of the dogs. I know some of you love cats, and I'm convinced that the reason you love your cat is because your cat acts like a dog. So, beware of the dogs. Well, in Paul's day, and if you've ever traveled to a developing country, you've seen this. Uh, Dogs are unkept in developing countries. You're told never to pet them. They're rabid often. They will get you in trouble. Uh, Don't, you know, you just don't touch them. And in Paul's day, they were. Uh, You know, today people call their dogs children. I mean, there's dog insurance. There's everything under the sun. So get that out of your head. When it says, beware of the dogs, it's rabid animals who run through the streets attacking random people who go by. That's what Paul is talking about. So who are they? Here it is. You'll see it on your screen. Judaizers who taught that circumcision was necessary in addition to faith in order to be saved. Now, I know that seems foreign to you, but the entire Old Testament covenant is based upon an act of circumcision. On the eighth day, 
baby boy, circumcised. That's the Old Testament. That's the basis of their covenant, the physical act of the spiritual reality of the covenant. And so there are these people who are following Paul around, and as they follow him around, what are they doing? They're saying, Paul, or they're saying to all of Paul's audience, in addition to Christ dying on the cross, you must be circumcised to be fully in. So they're mixing Judaism and Christianity. They're called Judaizers. All right, so you say, well, historically, I get that. Uh, They shouldn't do it. Well, how does it happen today? Probably once a year, I feel the need to go here, and so let's do it today. Let's talk about beliefs, convictions, and preferences. Because this is where we can sort through this and figure out where are the Judaizers who are in uh, the, the, the world today, in the Christian world. Beliefs are critical to the faith and must be adopted by everyone. That's beliefs. What are they? The authority of Scripture. That is a universal belief that must be adopted by every believer. A belief in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity. Salvation is by grace, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That is all throughout Scripture, old and new. Jesus Christ is visibly returning uh, one day. Those are beliefs. That means salvation isn't by church membership. It isn't by baptism. It isn't by works that you can do. Those are universal beliefs. And every follower of Christ must believe those to be a follower of Christ. If Scripture is not authoritative, then everything that we know, we really don't. We're guessing at because it comes from God's Word. What are convictions? They are strongly held personal opinions and do not have to be adopted by everyone. What are they? The version of Bible you read from. All right, I hear this on a regular basis. Why do you use the version of Bible that you use? And on a regular basis, folks will pick at this, right? They, they struggle with this. Let me, let me tell you how versions fall just quickly. There are literal translations. There are dynamic equivalent translations. And there are paraphrases. Literal translations. King James. New King James. New American Standard, the New Holman CSB, the ESV, those are literal translations of the Bible, word for word. So every preacher who preaches here preaches out of a literal translation. It is a conviction that we have. It's what we do. All right, so there are dynamic equivalent translations that would be in the middle, the NIV and the NLT Those are paragraph for paragraph. They are not word for word. Good to read, not great for study, because you are not getting word for word. Don't have a problem with them. We just don't use them for the course of study, of preparing a sermon, because they aren't literal. And then there are paraphrases. The Living Bible and the Message have authors. 
They are not translations. They simply, Eugene Peterson uh, died just a couple weeks ago who wrote the message and don't know the name of the living Bible. Those are paraphrases. Now, here is the reality. We, by conviction, preach out of a literal translation. That's just a conviction that we have. I have wonderful friends who preach out of a dynamic equivalent translation. Okay, don't, don't part ways with them. It's just where we land, right? That's a conviction. How you dress at church. I'm not talking about modesty or immodesty. Everybody should be modest. I'm talking about must it be a coat and tie or is it okay that I'm wearing blue jeans? All right? In the last six months, I received an email because my dress, according to that emailer, was less than enough for me to stand behind this and preach. That's simply a conviction they hold. They're fine to hold that conviction. It doesn't bother me. It's simply a conviction. The way you worship, that's a conviction. Some of you lift your hands. Some of you, if your hand goes up, the rapture is around the corner. All right? Like, here he comes, and you better be ready. That's just personal conviction. Can even drop down into preference. All right? If you, please hear me, if you expect everybody to worship like you worship, I wouldn't go to heaven. I'm just saying I wouldn't. I wouldn't. And where people tend to to camp out here is in the two extremes, right? So if you're Pentecostal and everybody doesn't worship like Pentecostals, then they're not going to heaven, right? So that's at one extreme. Or if you're over here and you stand straight and if you smile, God forbid, but you stand straight and you sing the song out of the hymnal in front of you and there's absolutely no emotion that should enter. Those are the two extremes. They tend to judge everybody kind of in the middle, right? It's simply a conviction. How about this? Making second-tier theology first-tier. You say, Jerry, what do you mean? When Calvinism is your calling card and not Jesus Christ, then your conviction has been elevated to a belief and you expect everybody to be a Calvinist, you're detracting from the cross. Any conviction elevated to a belief, anyone, whatever it may be, and you're going to preach that and you're going to proclaim that if you're a dispensationalist right? And everybody has to believe in the dispensations as you do. And if they do not, somehow they are not in. You've taken a second tier position, elevated it to a first. And when you do, Jesus Christ somehow slides into the background and your theology slides into the foreground. You say, Jerry, how do I know when I have a problem with that? When JC to you is John Calvin and not Jesus Christ? Huh? You could have a problem, right? That's when the problem could come in. How about how Jesus is going to return? Wow, this for some people. Have you ever been driving down the road and you see the church sign? We are a blank, 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 blank church. Yes, I've seen them, right? Premillennial, da, 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 down the line. I love what Larry Osborne says when he says a uh, pastor in California, been there, his church almost 40 years, uh, just wonderfully successful pastor. And Osborne says this, when it comes to the return of Christ, we have chosen to be on the welcoming committee, not the planning committee. <laughs> I'm with him. Amen, church? Amen. Even so come Lord Jesus. However it is you're going to, 
I love to study it, enjoy it, teach it, that kind of thing. But those are simply convictions. We cannot die on those hills. And then there are preferences. There are issues of style and do not have to be adopted by everyone. The way the building looks, music style, those kinds of things, you know, concrete instead of carpet, all that kind of stuff. Those things are merely preferences. You know what the sad reality is? Most churches fight over what? Preferences. Most church arguments, most church fights are not over the things that matter most. There are churches that need to have some serious conversations about theology in their church. They need to have some serious belief conversations and deal with some things, but they won't. But I guarantee you, if somebody comes in and and suggests uh, maroon over green carpet, that it could be a colossal, uh, deadly fight in that church. We've done this now and practiced this for years, and we do it with great love and tenderness. But if you have a soapbox on a theological issue, you will never lead a group in this church and you'll never teach a class. Why? Because Jesus Christ is coming back and we have this little bit of time to tell as many people as we can before he does that he's coming back. And your or my second tier theological issue does not matter. It doesn't. It just doesn't. And I would say to you, And okay, here we go. That people who insist that it does, beware of them because they're dogs. Okay, that's quiet. Um, (laughs) Let's keep going. It gets better. Okay. Worship by the Spirit, glory in Christ Jesus. To worship by the Spirit is to worship filled with the Spirit. All right, that can happen every single Sunday, but last Sunday was special, wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, God had a different plan, and thankfully, Tim, I believe your transparency and your testimony just ushered a sweetness of the Spirit of God in this place. I really do, and I appreciate that. I really do. We always want to be a church of of struggling saints, amen? We, We want to be a church of transparent people who come in. And we may be stumbling all over ourselves, but if we stumble right into each other's arms, then we're going to be all right. Amen, church? Amen. We'll, we'll get through this. And Tim, I appreciate that. And so what do we do? We worship by the Spirit. We glory in Christ Jesus. Do you know what? I don't think you can worship by the Spirit unless you are glorying in Christ Jesus. Okay? So if you say it's the Spirit and it's confusing, guess what it ain't? The Spirit. The Spirit's not confusing. The Spirit will draw attention to Jesus Christ every single time. Jesus said, when he said he was leaving the Spirit, that the Spirit would bear witness to who? Him. All right, the Judaizers are focusing on what they can do. Paul is focusing on what Christ has already done. Spirit-filled worship has Christ as the subject and its object. What does glory mean? It means to boast. It means to boast. So let me give you an illustration. He's sitting right here. His name's Gary Suttles. All right, so he's sitting right here. Gary is. So Gary, through his life, has been a, a really successful businessman and just very humble about it, and, but he's done very well. And so that was not in a bad way ever have I known him, his glory, until one thing happened. And that one thing is called grandson. <laughs> now, everybody who knows Gary, say amen. amen. Yeah. 
All right, so, so it was this, and Gary's an avid biker, and we talk about this and all of that. But now, something tells me that when his mom wonders, it wonders to grandson. Why? Because that's his, that's his pride and joy. Like that grandson, is Gary, there's no doubt Gary's pride and joy, there's no doubt about that, right? And here you go, have a guy who spent all his life in this career, building and, and doing and selling and, and being so successful. And all of a sudden, one little bundle about this big can come roaring in, screaming in, right? Roaring, screaming in. And it's like all of that just goes out the window. Do you know what? When you truly get saved and born again, that's what happens. When you do, when Jesus comes to live in you, all of a sudden, all of these things that mattered so much, you don't glory in them anymore. You glory in the Jesus who picked you up out of the miry clay, as David said, and set your feet on a rock and established your way. And I'm like going straight free will right now. But that's what you do. You glory in him. You no longer glory in your bank account. You no longer glory in your reputation. You no longer glory in your status in life, but you glory in the one who came as a baby, who grew up, who died on the cross, who resurrected, who ascended, and who is coming back. Amen? We glory in him. That's who we glory in, right? That spirit-filled worship. How severe is this? Verse 7, Paul said, but whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever it was, just mark it off my Jesus, just mark your theology off your list. Not that you shouldn't be a theologian. I read it all the time, study it all the time, love it, love it, love it, love it. Love having conversations about it. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying glory in Christ. Glory in Christ. Oh, I so want people who walk in our doors Sunday in and Sunday out to say they made much of Jesus. They made much of Jesus. Do you know why it is so important that this be sandwiched between these two other truths? Glory in Christ, worship full of the Spirit, in order to worship by the Spirit and glory in Christ. Those are positive things to do. We must be aware of the enemy without. Those are the dogs and the enemy within. And that's what Paul mentions next. So please hear me. You have two enemies. You have dogs who have their soapbox. And if they can, they'll distract you. They'll climb up into you, read enough blogs, listen to enough podcasts, and you'll buy into their message. You won't even know it. It's everywhere today, everywhere today, everywhere today. Just because we're in a rural setting as we are doesn't mean it does not come flying in to your devices. I know that. But then there's also the enemy within And that's the third thing Paul says, put no confidence in the flesh. The more subtle enemy is your own flesh, your own performance, your own righteousness. Paul listed his credentials. They were many. He had reason to put uh, put, uh, confidence in his own accomplishments. If anyone did, Paul did. What are they? Look Look at his list here. It's amazing. All his Jewish audience, these Judaizers, right? He's showing them up. None of them in their Judaism can approach him. He said, I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, which was a good deal. He was on the right side of the tracks. 
the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, that was the most elite group of people who followed the law, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Doesn't mean perfect, it just means I was consistent. I got it right every, uh, all the time. That's what he's saying. So Paul is saying to all these Judaizers who are following him around, who are telling his new followers of Christ, if you don't have this, if you don't have this, you're not in. If you don't have this, you're not born again. If you don't have this, you, you, you just got part of what you need. You need something more. Paul is saying to them, hey, 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 if you're going on Judaism, I got you every single time all day long. My pedigree will outdo yours any day of the week. Don't give me that. Don't give me that. Put no confidence, not some, no confidence in the flesh. No confidence in the flesh. Well, why? Why? Because the flesh will let you down. All right? What is your flesh? Your flesh is, is your two things in Scripture. It could just refer to your physical being, apart from your spiritual. But it is also that drive that each of us has to do life our way and it's in you and it it ain't going anywhere it's in us it's deep in us so paul says put no confidence in the flesh so what i'm going to do if you're a note taker this is going to drive you slap crazy so just relax because this will populate the my blog enoughfortoday.org it'll populate it like 1105 this morning everything that's about to come on the screen so i want you to listen and take this in i i uh Use this, I borrowed this from Tim Keller. This is a, a comparison between religion and the gospel. And uh, I'm afraid some of you are religious without having a relationship with Jesus. And it terrified me for you to be in this church and not know how to know Jesus. Religion says, I obey, therefore I'm accepted. And the gospel says, I'm accepted, therefore I obey. I'm just going to turn around and read these with you. And so just keep rolling with me through the screen. Religion says motivation is based on fear and insecurity. The gospel says motivation is based on grateful joy. Let me pause on that one. Years ago, we had a a young woman. Many of you got to meet her, Icy, who lived with us. Icy was from Senegal. She was an exchange student. And she came to worship here every Sunday. And uh, every Wednesday night, every first Wednesday, Icy was here. And Icy and our daughter Hannah just became dear friends. They still are today. On Thanksgiving Day, we FaceTimed Icy, who you might be interested to know, still lives in the States and has become a nurse. And so we FaceTimed her on Thanksgiving Day. Icy, we shared the gospel with. She was Muslim again and again. And her big deal was fear. She was motivated by fear. Her faith said to her that if she did not do it, she said to us, I hope by the end of my life, the good I have done will outweigh the bad and that God will let me in. I just want to say to you this morning that you are not good enough to get into heaven. Your sin separates you. My sin separates me from God. And apart from the blood of Jesus Christ covering my sin, 
That's where we get the word atonement. Covering my sin. There is no heaven to gain. There is no favor with God to be had. All right, let's keep going. Religion says I obey God in order to get things from him. The gospel says I obey God to delight and resemble him. Religion says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I am angry at God or myself since I believe like Job's friends that anyone who is good deserves a comfortable life. The gospel says when circumstances in my life go wrong, I struggle, but I know all my punishment fell on Jesus and that while he may allow this for my training, he will exercise his fatherly love within my trial. So Caroline is doing this. We talked before the service, Caroline and I did, and I said, how are you doing? On the inside, Caroline, she said, when I wake up and I'm hurting, I struggle, but then I'll say, God, just show me how you're using this. Just show me how you're using this. She said, when I sense he's using it, I'm better. That's this. That's gospel-centered living in the face of certain trials. This week, I went to visit two of Lisa Sprouse's friends. Two little Hispanic men. Eleazar and I can't remember the other. Is it Jose? And Jose. One is completely blind. And the other is blind in one eye. And losing vision in the other. Jose takes care of Eleazar as I recall. The one Jose who has partial vision. But they love the Lord. They, they live in abject conditions. A family in our church is just kind of by, you would think happenstance, but no, by God's work, stumbled upon them in a dialysis clinic and has now taken these two men under their wing. They needed a translator to let them know in this bitterly cold weather that they're going to install a little gas heater. They had a little electric heater sitting in the front of their little tiny house, keeping that one little room warm. Had everything else blocked off, not enough heat to get back. We've had, what, 20-some degree nights this week. So we're talking, and I think it was Eliezer, if I'm keeping them right, but at any rate, whichever one who is blind as I understand, has a Braille copy of the Scriptures. And he reads all day. And so he and I talked back and forth. He just smiled large. And we talked. And then he said to me, we made some jokes and different things in Spanish. And then he said, I want to preach at your church. Like, wow, you're a little forward. Um, <laughs> so, come February, first Wednesday, guess who's preaching? I'm going to interpret it for him. And I said, if it's anything 
that I don't like, I'll just say what I want to say. <laughs> and do you know what he said? Are you ready for this? He said, that's fine, but please don't say this. Don't say any prosperity gospel. He said, there's no place for that. Please don't say any of that. God did not promise us good things, perfect life. He promised to be with us, and every day he's with me in my living room right here. I would say you might need to show up first Wednesday in February. There might be something that you and I can get from this, this guy. He lives that out. That's the gospel. That's gospel living, isn't it? That's gospel living. Let's keep going. Religion, when I'm criticized, I'm furious or devastated because it is critical that I think of myself as a, quote, good person. Threats to that self-image must be destroyed at all costs. The gospel, when I'm criticized, I struggle, but it is not critical for me to think of myself as a good person. My identity is not built on my record or my performance. Oh, that we could live here. Don't you want to live here? But God's love for me in Christ, I can take criticism. Next one. Religion says my prayer life consists largely of petition and it only heats up when I am in a time of need. My main purpose in prayer is control of the environment. The gospel says my prayer life consists of generous stretches of praise and adoration. My main purpose is fellowship with him. Reminds me of that old song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. To my heart to sing your praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing. Call for songs of loudest praise. Teach me some melodious sonnet sung by flaming tongues above. Oh, praise the mountain fixed upon it, fount of thy redeeming love. Amen, church? That's the point of prayer. That's the point of spending time with the Lord. It's not gimme, 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 gimme. It's Lord, can I know you? Can you tune my heart? It's out of tune all over again and tune my heart to sing your praise. Religion says my self-view swings between two poles. If and when I'm living up to my standards, I feel confident, but then I'm prone to be proud and unsympathetic to failing people. If and when I'm not living up to standards, I feel insecure and inadequate. I'm not confident. I feel like a failure. Anybody live there? The gospel says my self-view is not based on a view of myself as a moral achiever. In Christ, I am simultaneously sinful and yet accepted in Christ. I am so bad he had to die for me. And I am so loved he was glad to die for me. This leads me to deeper and deeper humility and confidence at the same time. Neither swaggering nor sniveling. And is there another? Religion says my identity and self-worth are based mainly on how hard I work or how moral I am. And so I must look down on those I perceive as lazy or immoral. I disdain and feel superior to the other. 
The gospel says my identity and self-worth are centered on the one who died for his enemies, who was excluded from the city for me. I am saved by sheer grace. So I can't look down on those who believe or practice something different from me. Only by grace I am what I am. I have no inner need to win arguments. Wow. Religion says, since I look to my own pedigree or performance for my spiritual acceptability, my heart manufactures idols. It may be my talents, my moral record, my personal discipline, my social status. I absolutely have to have them so they serve as my main hope, meaning, happiness, security, and significance. Whatever I may say I believe about God, the gospel says I have many good things in my life, family, work, spiritual disciplines. But none of these good things are ultimate things to me. None of them are things I absolutely have to have. So there is a limit to how much anxiety, bitterness, and despondency they can inflict on me when they are threatened and lost. Religion versus the gospel. I know that's a lot for one sermon. That's why it's on the blog. Some of you this week in your quiet time need to take this list and just by the Spirit move through it. So there's a scene in the movie. Uh, let's, I think it'll make sense. Just, just check it out. On his death, my father left me a small inheritance. Belle wished to be married, insisting that we could get along on very little. But I wanted something more for both of us. So I lent out that money, laid the foundations for financial success, which I have achieved, I may add. Hmm. Congratulations. I'll thank you not to sneer. Spirit, show me no more. Conduct me home. You have explained what you gained. Now I will show you what you have lost. Belle. Yes. Belle. And those are her children. Oh, darling, he's wonderful, isn't he? Oh, Lord, what a brood. might have been mine. The same thought occurred to me. I saw an old friend of yours in the city this afternoon. Who was it? Guess. I can't. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Ebenezer Scrooge. Mr. Scrooge it was. I passed his office window and it was not shuttered. He had a single candle lit upon his desk. His partner, Jacob Marley, lies on the point of death, I hear. And there he sat, Ebenezer Scrooge, alone. Quite alone in the world, I do believe. Poor Ebenezer. Poor wretched man. Spare me your pity. I have no need of it. They can't hear you. And as for you, I've had enough of your pictures from the past. Leave me. Haunt me no longer.
Ebenezer Scrooge, who is religiously committed to greed and wealth, sees what he's lost. Here's the last thing I want to happen to you is your religious commitment to exclude you from a relationship with Jesus Christ. If walking in the walls of church made you a Christian, then walking into a garage would make you a car. It, it doesn't. I heard a sermon recently where Alistair Begg said the most dangerous place to be was lost and in church every Sunday because you have eventually become inoculated to the gospel. If you do not know Christ, you can. You say, what do I do? After this service, I'll be up here. I'll be right down here. James, who's coming up right now to close us, he'll join me. Adrian, who is here, will be here. If you do not know Christ, would you come? Would you receive him? As others will be leaving and exiting and going to where it is they go, I would invite you to come this way. And receive Christ as your Savior. James.